Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, Gospel according to John chapter 4. We will read the first 26 verses of that chapter. It's a rather long reading. And uh, today's sermon is the, the God who seeks the despised, and it is the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John 4, verses 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that asks you for a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is, is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we come to your throne of grace and of mercy as those who indeed need grace and need mercy. We confess to you our many sins of omission and of commission and of not filling up the standard of your perfect righteousness. But we also come grabbing the hand of our advocate, Jesus, the one who lived the life we could not live and who paid on the cross the transgressions we have committed and keep committing. And in his name we pray for mercy and for grace. We pray that you draw near to us. And even as we sang in that last song, that you speak to us through your word. Despite the failures of the one who speaks, beside, despite the failures of those who listen, May your spirit speak to us your word in Jesus' name, to his glory. Amen. Amen. In ancient literature, whether it is biblical or not, wells were the place where young women would go to draw water. More than that, wells were the equivalent and I, don't, I hope I'm not being irreverent by saying it, but wealth were equivalent to a bar of our day. That's where you would go to pick up women. Because young women would go and young men would go to the well to find potential ladies to marry. And in fact, in scripture, we have those scenes. Abraham's servant when he went to find a wife for Isaac, he found that wife at a well. Jacob found Rachel at a well. Moses found Zipporah at a well. It was a common scene to see young women going to wells to draw water. So, if you remember that scene, or if you have read it, when he was looking for his father's sheep, he ran into young ladies who were actually drawing water from a well, and they were the ones who told him where the sheep were and that he shouldn't worry about them. Special encounters also occurred at wells. For example, twice God dealt with Hagar and with Ishmael at a well. And when Sarah rejected Ishmael and Haggai because Ishmael was teasing or taunting uh, Isaac and Sarah had Abraham kick them out of the house. She went to a well to die and God appeared to her and gave her the promise that Ishmael too would be a great nation. God encountered a woman and her child who were rejected at the house of Abraham. And about 2,000 years later, the scene repeated. Jesus met a woman who was rejected and despised in her own hometown and brought her salvation and the promise of water that springs forth to eternal life 
at a well. Now, what's the context of the passage? What is the, or, or actually you have the outline? Yes, you have the outline. It's a very simple outline. The place, the woman, and the seeker. And we'll deal with that at a given point. So what is the place and who are the people involved? The Samaritans. Jesus was, according to the recollection of John 4, in the south, in Galilee. We're not told if he was in Jerusalem or if he was in Bethany, where Martha uh, and Mary and Lazarus lived, very close to Jerusalem. But Jesus was in the south. And when there was this controversy, because he was picking up too many disciples, and he was baptizing even more disciples than John the Baptist, he says, let me, let me go back to my, to my hometown and go north and avoid controversies. Jesus was not in the business of creating turmoils. He was, in, he was in his ministry, but he avoided unnecessary turmoil. Unlike some well-known preachers who seem to be picking up fights with someone every week. But that's another story. Who were the Samaritans? If you see the map, Jesus had to indefectibly cross through Samaria. Now, the Samaritans and Samaria, it's a very particular place because when the kingdom got divided after Solomon's death, the Samaritans were those who stayed with ten tribes, or Samaria, I should say, not the Samaritans. Samaria was the zone that stayed with ten tribes and the kingdom of the south and this servant turned king Jeroboam, while Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son and remained with the lineage of David, stayed with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the north. Just a side note, when Paul says, I am a Jew of Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, he was saying, I belong to to one of the two tribes that could be reinserted in Israel's genealogy. Only the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin could, have, could be identified after the deportations. Because the Assyrians took away the kingdom of the south and those ten tribes to the north, and those are the famous lost tribes of Israel. It is very hard to pinpoint, oh, I'm from the tribe of Issachar. You can't. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained with the genealogy inscribed as it appears in the book of Second Chronicles and Nehemiah and others. So here's this scenario where you have a people that became the kingdom of the south, the split of the kingdom of Israel, and in the year 722 the Assyrians come and take them away in exile, and they, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Sorry about this call that I'm battling. And they deplete or basically leave the, the land desolate. Now, when they left the land desolate, the Assyrians realized, wait a second. If we leave that land desolate, we're running a lot of political and military risks because you cannot have land that is not inhabited because somebody else could go and take it from us. So they decided to pick up people from northern nations and repopulate the southern part of Israel with those people. When, they, when these new people came to Samaria or to that area, then God started to send judgment and punishment to them because they were being idolaters. 
And the Assyrians said, there is a problem with the God of the land. He doesn't like the habits and the religion and the customs of these people we have planted. Pick some Levites to teach them the law of the God of the land. And by the way, that, that was a practice that those old empires would have. They would respect the religions of the people they conquered. It was not only with Israel. The Romans did the same, and they would do it with anybody they conquered. Now, when the Levites went to the area that is Samaria, that is in your map, they taught heathen people, pagans, how to worship God. And from there, you have the Samaritans who were not true Israelites, who were not descendants of Abraham, who were not ethnically covenant people. They were just foreigners that were planted there by the Assyrians and taught the religion of the God of the Old Testament by these Levites assigned by the Assyrians. Now you move that 700 years into the future, and what do you have? You have a people that is abhorred, despised, rejected, hated by the original Jews, those who ethnically and by covenant were the proprietors of the land where the Samaritans lived. But they couldn't do anything about it because they were already living there. It's like when you go to Jerusalem today, Jerusalem has a lot of Arabic people, a lot of Muslim people. They cannot do anything about it because they are there. You cannot create a fight over that or a war. That was exactly the context. But Jews didn't like that those Samaritans were in their land and that those Samaritans were worshiping Yahweh, but they were really not part of the covenant. Because the Israelites did not understand that from the beginning, God's purpose and plan was not just to have them and save them, but to save all of Adam's race, as one of the hymns goes. But they didn't get that. They became very nationalistic. If it reminds you anybody from this time and age and epoch and this very country, well, that's old. That's not from now. In Jesus' days, the Samaritans were foreigners, invaders. They were despised. They were the settlers that came from another place. Beloved, racism is not an American problem. Please get it in your mind. Ethnophobia is not an issue with white people in America. Ethnophobia happens everywhere. God has given me the privilege to travel through many places. Chileans do not like Peruvians. Peruvians do not like Bolivians. Chileans and Argentinians do not like each other. Ecuadorians do not like Colombians. Colombians do not like Venezuelans. Dominicans do not like Haitians. Puerto Ricans do not like Dominicans. This is not an America's problem. It is a problem that started in Genesis 3 when Adam sinned and the whole creation was cursed. I'm not downplaying the social issues of our day. I'm not downplaying those who have suffered over discrimination. I'm not downplaying any of that stuff. But it's just that we have to be realistic. It's a theological problem. It is not a social, national problem. Now, that's the place and the people and the context. What about the woman that Jesus encounters? Because the whole passage is the God who seeks the despised. The God who goes after those who are despicable and that nobody wants to go after. Well, the woman was a woman. Duh. 
well, yes, she was a woman, she identified as a woman, and she acted as a woman. We even have to say those things nowadays, but truth is, she was a woman. What's the problem? That women have been oppressed, women have been mistreated, women have been discriminated, and again, it is not an America's problem. It is it's a problem that started in Genesis 3. God told Eve, what you ladies who are married know, and what you young sisters who have younger brothers know. God said to Eve, because of sin, you will try to lord it over your husband, and you start practice as a little sister with your little brothers. You'll try to lord, you, you will try to lord it over them, but they will lord it over you. And that was a curse. The curse was that men would dominate, oppress women. And this woman in those days was a discriminated class. My employer makes me take all these harassment discrimination courses every so often. And it's always the issue of not despising people because of the many reasons we can despise a person. One of them is gender. Women have been despised over the course, over the course of time. We cannot minimize it. Yes, it is a sin problem. It is a theological problem. But we cannot pretend that it is not hard for a woman not to, be, not to be paid equally as a man. That it is not hard for a woman not to have or to enjoy the same privileges than men. That it is not hard for women to have this glass ceiling that many times they cannot overcome because they are women. That is not right. That is not correct. It is a reality with which we live. And some of us have daughters, and it hurts us that it happens. Now, it is a sin problem. It is not a social issue. It is not solved with feminism. It is solved with the gospel of grace. It is solved with the liberty, with the glorious liberty, to which the children of God will come when all things are restored, and new heavens and new earth come to earth, or come to our realm, and righteousness will dwell. Does that mean we don't try to get things better? Yeah, we do what we can to get things better, but please get it. It's not going to be solved until the regeneration and restoration of all things. Now, this woman had another problem. Not only was she a woman, she was a Samaritan woman. That's adding insult to injury. Because if at least she was a Jewish woman, well, she was a child of the covenant. She was a daughter of Sarah by faith. Not this one. She was an outcast. She was a Samaritan. And I love it because this passage is a reminder that when God decides to pick people for himself, Ephesians 4 tells us what he does. God goes to the bottom of the pile, of the pot, and instead of taking the cream of the crop, he goes to the very bottom and picks up the scum for himself. And that's the gospel. That's what Paul reminded the Corinthians about. Consider your vocation, brethren. There's not many noble among you. There's not many wise among you. There's not many wealthy among you. God chose the things that are not to undo the things that are. God chose the things that are not worthy to show his grace in those vessels of clay 
that may be despised for the world, but they are his chosen ones. So indeed, God, or in this case Jesus, God on earth, went to the very bottom of the pot to pick this immoral Samaritan woman. Now, notice something in the text. She was alone. In all the passages in the Old Testament where women are drawing water from a well, they are in groups. This one was alone. And notice the time of the day. It was at noon. I am not saying what I'm going to say dogmatically because it is not in the text, but I think I can make an intelligent guess. Why do you think she was alone? Why do you think she didn't come to draw water early in the morning with the other women? Because being a woman and being a Samaritan, she was also despised and deplorable even to the Samaritans. She had to come alone. She had no friends. Who wants to befriend the caliber of woman this woman was? She was lonely, despised, rejected, rejected, deplorable, even to her own deplorable Samaritan people. And I pause and ask, do you know people like that? Are there people like those in your circles where you work, where you study, in your neighborhood, even in church, where you, where you have your network of associates and of people? Do you know those who are really the not too attractive when lunchtime comes and it's Friday and we decide to go out and hang out with the people at the office and, and you come, Omar, and you come, David, and you, but um, there's Alex there. No, no, don't invite Alex. I'm picking on you purposely, Alex, because I know you don't get offended. Do you know people like that? That we don't pick on them because they are the ones we don't like. People we'd rather not hang out with. Because they are kind of in the weird spectrum of life. We know weird people, don't we? So what do you think about such and such? Hmm, Well, hmm, I don't know. Um, It's kind of strange. They're different. They're eccentric. We even find mathematical words to describe them. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 31. God goes after those. (laughs) Those are the ones God likes the nobodies of the world, the not wise of the world, the poor of the world. Darren preached on that from James the other day. God decided to make the poor of this world the heirs of his kingdom. Do you realize that in heaven we will be with a lot of minorities and poor people that on this earth we may not want to hang out with? Because God chose the poor and those who are not to be heirs in his kingdom. Do you and I remember that Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And we are so drawn to riches. We're so drawn to prosperity. We're so drawn to opulence and to wealth. And Jesus says it is difficult. Easier to have a camel go through a little hole in one of those doors 
that guard the city than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the third place in this passage, we find the seeker. And why do I say the seeker? Well, probably all of you, most of you know of this movement. I think it started in the late 70s or mid-70s, the seeker-sensitive movement. Churches that decided we need to make ourselves attractive to those who are seeking. So we're glad to have visitors when you come to our church. We want you to feel comfortable, welcome, and somehow we're going to cater everything to you guys. The bad news is that we don't do that. We, we don't cater anything to visitors. We don't cater anything to seekers because there's only one seeker. And Jesus says in the text that God is the one who seeks worshipers. There are not worshipers seeking a church to find. There's God who seeks those who will worship him. That's what the Bible teaches. So here we find a very countercultural dialogue. The woman says to Jesus after the disciples had gone to buy food in town, how you being a Jew and me being a Samaritan woman are asking me for a drink. That doesn't happen. Are you, are you from around here? Do you realize that we don't talk? It was a counter-cultural dialogue. Jesus engaged a person he was not meant or he was not supposed to engage. But you know something that moved me, even as I was preparing my notes for the sermon, moved me to tears. The gentleness and the humility of Jesus. He was not afraid or embarrassed to expose his weakness. The text says it was noon. And you saw the map. He was coming from a distance. So at noon, tired, he sits. And I imagine, because he was a human being just like us, as I've said to you before, he was not Superman dressed as Clark Kent. He was a human being. The only thing he didn't have was sin. But he had every weakness of ours. Yes, Jesus caught colds too. Every weakness we have, he was touched and tempted with. That's what Hebrew says, except sin. So I imagine Jesus huffing and puffing, sitting and seeing the woman saying, would you give me a drink? Can you imagine... The rock in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul says guided Israel through the desert. The rock that provided water for 2 million Jews in the desert. Those are not my words. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Can you imagine the creator of water? That expansion that was divided at the beginning in Genesis. The waters from above and the waters from below. And Colossians says that all things, all things have been made by him and through him. Talking about Jesus. Can you imagine the creator and the supplier of every spring of water sitting, huffing? Woman, can you give me a drink? That's mind-boggling to me. The very fountain of water was thirsty. And the very fountain of water stooped down to an immoral 
despised, despicable, rejected woman from Samaria. And he stooped down to her to say, give me a drink, please. That's the incarnation. Theologians called it kenosis, the emptying of Christ, who being God did not regard equality with God something to grasp, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a bond servant, humbled himself to becoming one of us, even to the point of death. If I told you I understand that, I would be lying to you. I do not understand that. But the Bible teaches that. Now it's fascinating to me that Jesus showed himself vulnerable. God on earth came to the woman and said, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. Can you give me water? Way too many preachers. Way too many preachers. Some of them eloquent, brilliant, magnificent preachers tune me off on one thing. You know what? They don't show themselves vulnerable. Their examples of weakness are things that I would not do in ten lives. Jesus didn't have any problem presenting himself as a weak, thirsty human being, even though he was God. Way too many of us spend too much time trying to protect our image, trying to show ourselves with the perfect lives, the perfect marriage, the perfect parenting, the perfect everything. If sinless Jesus didn't have a problem to show himself vulnerable, don't worry and don't spend too much time feeling the cracks of your own earthenness. God put his treasure on earthen vessels. Don't be afraid to show the cracks. His glory shines through those cracks. Now, the woman couldn't perceive things spiritually. How can you draw water? How can you give me water that will remove my thirst forever? Are you greater than Jacob? She didn't get it. She had a carnal interest on Jesus' offer at first. There are people who come to church and who live in church with a carnal interest. The interest of a good family, a good life, a clean life, raising my kids in a clean environment, homeschooling so they are not contaminated with the world. And I did all of those things. I'm not, I'm not decrying them. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not homeschooling. The gospel is not raising your children in Sunday school. The gospel has nothing to do with a clean environment and the benefits of being a religious person. Nothing to do with that. This woman had this thought of having a carnal interest. Oh, help me to get that water so I don't have to come back. And Jesus rings her back. Bring your husband. Oh, um... No, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had five. And the guy you're shacking up now, I know it's not in the text. I made that word. The guy you're shacking up now with, he's not your husband. That you have said right. Because if you read the passage, the woman was kind of cocky. Sir, where can you get the water? How can you draw it from? 
Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who gave us a well? Go get your husband. And immediately she is deflated. Evangelism. The final stage and the complete point of evangelism is exposing sin and offering Jesus. Jesus could not offer himself to her until he showed what her problem was. You're an immoral woman. And that is your biggest problem. That is the water I came to, or that is the thirst I came to assuage. So Jesus offered himself. I love the way he says, if you only knew, if you only knew woman, who is asking you for a drink of water? Just stop and think about it. Would you give me a drink? If you knew, if you knew who's asking you for a drink, it is the very God of heaven who came down to offer you the springs of water that go for life eternal. If you knew that. The good thing in the story is that she eventually found out. Did you notice that the woman had hopes in Messiah? Oh Lord, I think you're a prophet. You know things. When Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. How come this Samaritan woman, who was not even ethnically a Jew, knew or know about Messiah? I love those glimpses in Scripture that remind us that this is way bigger, broader, wider, larger than what we think. This Samaritan knew there was a Messiah, and she was hoping in that Messiah. In the book of Psalms, a thousand years before Christ, it says that the ends of the earth hope in God. The ends of the earth. Remember being in Istanbul. I was with Ricky and Jadira. They were sitting, visiting us today. And I was visiting the blue, blue, whatever, blue mosque. We started walking around, and I saw this Muslim pray. My heart broke. I started weeping, and I just stood behind him and started praying for him. Here's a man praying to Allah. And I was asking God, show yourself to him. Muslims believe Jesus is the greatest prophet. In their, in their book, Jesus is the greatest of all prophets. Please show him who you are the true and living God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the truth is that God has left a witness for himself everywhere. Malachi says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And that is in the Old Testament. Graham Goldsworthy has this book, According to the Plan. And the whole point of his book is to show how biblical theology is taking the Old Testament and the New and putting it all together. It is about God's redemptive plan in Jesus. And from the beginning, from Genesis 3, it was about saving the children of Adam. Not just a little group of people. Conclusion. Well, I have one or three or maybe it's one and the same in three stages, reaching out, which is what Jesus did with that woman, is not recycling. Very different. 
reaching out is going to those deplorable, despicable, that nobody wants to see in their churches or near their families because they are sinful. Reaching out, even for us as a church, is not recycling. It's not getting Christians from other churches. Otto Sanchez, a pastor in the DR, he told me once, perhaps the churches in the United States, and he was more specific than that, perhaps the Reformed churches in the United States need to be taught how to fish in the ocean, not on fish bowls. We go out to the world. The mission field is out there. I think it was Victor Hernandez many years ago told me that he used to visit a church in Atlanta. And when you leave the parking lot, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a big sign saying, entering the mission field. Guys, that's what we're here for. We are royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people acquired for God's own possession, says First Peter, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. My friend Otto coupled that statement with a joke that is common among Dominican Reformed people. Says, do you know what's the difference between a Pentecostal testimony and a Reformed Baptist testimony? Says, no, I don't. No, it's easy. When you hear a Pentecostal giving his testimony, he stands up in the pulpit and says, I used to be a drunkard, a drug addict, a thief, a criminal. I've been to jail. I've been in I've been the scum of the world. But somebody brought the gospel to me. I saw the light. I saw Christ. Turned to him, and I converted. Wow, what a testimony. So do you know what the Reformed Baptist testimony is? No, I used to be a Pentecostal. (laughs) Recycling is not reaching out. Now, there is a lesson about true worship in the passage, but we don't have time for that. So we'll have to leave that for the next installment of the seeker who goes after the despicable. For now, let us pray. Father, take your word and apply it according to our need. But especially, may your spirit present Christ to us in all his beauty, in all his magnificence. Even this Christ who came down to show himself vulnerable, even to die on a cross, to rescue Samaritans like us. Please be magnified and use your word according to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.